I mean, if you have a Bible, we're in Romans 8 tonight. Uh, we will pick up in just a few minutes at verse number 12. Uh, now, just to let you know about Sunday, uh, this Sunday we're going to begin a three-part study on the person and life of Samson, uh, which if you've been around here a while, you've probably been wondering, hey, when, when are we going to get to Samson? Because we haven't talked about Samson. I don't think I've ever really done a, 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 a series of ser- sermons or messages on Samson. We have went through Judges a few times, but never really stopped and uh, got what I think God has for us out of the life of Samson. Now, the first message in what will be a three-part study, the first message is going to be a look at Samson's parents, which is in Judges 13, if you want to read ahead and get prepared for for that and uh, ask God to start talking to you through that text before even Sunday comes. Uh, the first message will focus on his parents and how God introduced Samson to them before they ever had him. And they told, God told him that you're going to have this son and he's going to have a special calling on his life before he was ever conceived or born. Uh, so get ahead of the game and prepare your hearts for that. And then we'll look at his life as he is raised up to be a judge for Israel. And of course, he makes some unfortunate decisions that ends up costing him greatly yet he finds redemption in the end. So uh, that'll be a three-part message on Samson. And and speaking of three-part messages, uh, we are in week two of what is going to be a three-part look at a single chapter. So you might understand how it's easy to break up a a character or a story uh, into three parts, but a chapter usually doesn't require uh, three specific looks at it. But if there's any chapter in the Bible that deserves uh, more than that even, uh, it is Romans chapter 8. And we've lauded this chapter. We've uh, praised this chapter, given a lot of accolades, uh, that, uh, that this is one of the most, if not the most important chapter of the Bible, especially for Christians. If you're a believer, uh, you have what you need, or, or, and you, you, you've been saved and you've been brought to God, Romans 8 is so important at taking you that next step, at what we said last week, taking you from salvation to discipleship, uh, taking you from uh, following following Jesus, to being devoted to Jesus and growing in Jesus. So if you want a chapter that just continues to give and give and give and give, Romans 8 is that chapter and much more. And of course, all the Bible is inspired. Every chapter has amazing things to say to us. Uh, We've been in this Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8 bracket that we have talked a lot about being very important. And Romans 8 is just the icing on the cake. Uh, And uh, we are, again, just in week two of what will be a three-part could have done this in four, but wanted to not drift, not linger too long. Um, but when you read Romans 8 verse 1, when you hear Paul say, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, it's almost as if this, this, you can tell that there is something in him that has been waiting to say those words. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. Now means as in because of what we have learned about, because of what we have spent the last seven chapters just getting every last detail about uh, justification by faith and what it means to be saved and, or need to be saved, there is now therefore no condemnation. You can just tell he was waiting to say those words because uh, back in chapter one, Paul's entire premise for Romans, his entire argument through the first three chapters was that there was only condemnation for everybody. So for him to say there is now no condemnation, that's a big statement because he spent the first three chapters of this book making it very clear how there was only condemnation for those who are in their flesh, which is all of us. He made it clear in the first three chapters of Romans that all of us are condemned in our sin, condemned in our flesh, depraved even. We all need salvation because all of us are desperately bound in and by sin. 
He, he made this conclusion in Romans 3, there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So if you read Romans 1, 2, and 3, 3 is this big culmination of what he has been talking about in the introduction that every human, everybody is condemned because all have sinned and all fall short. And he was talking to Jews who thought they were religious enough, who thought they had enough heritage and enough, you know, self-righteousness to get them there. He says, Jews, you have all sinned. Gentiles, you have all sinned. All of us, religious or non-religious, no matter what our, our background is or what our stories are, all of us in our sin before God fall short of his glory. So for Paul to make this statement, there is now no condemnation. That's a big deal because he's made it very clear there is only condemnation for all who have sinned and fall short. But now, as in something has changed, something is now different. And what is the difference maker? What is the change? What makes the, the difference or what changes us? It's those two words, in Christ. That's what makes the difference. He, he declares that we all were in sin. We all needed salvation and we could not save ourselves. And as we determined last week, what saves us? Who saves us? Those two words, in Christ. Christ has done the work in us moving into him, trusting in him, being transferred to him. That is what saves us. And really the twist of Romans the, the irony of Romans or what you would not expect after the first few chapters of we're ungodly and we're unrighteous and we are fall short of God's glory. The twist of Romans, because again, in the first three chapters, Paul makes it very clear that God is holy and we aren't. God is righteous and we aren't. God's standard is this and we fall short of it. The irony of Romans and the twist of Romans and really the entire Bible is the God in whose presence our flesh trembles and crumbles has himself provided our salvation. That's the irony. That's the unexpected twist of Romans. Paul builds up God as this holy and almighty being. And of course he is in whose presence we tremble and crumble. And yet what he gets to in Romans five and six is that Christ, God incarnate, comes to us in our flesh and redeems us and restores us. That is the good news. That is the gospel that yes, in our flesh, we tremble and melt before God, but God came to us in the likeness of our flesh, condemned sin in the flesh and did for us what we could not and cannot do for ourselves. He redeemed us and he restores us. This is the scandal of grace. This is the gospel. And we spent the first 11 verses breaking down what it means to be in Christ. Well, of course, it means that we're saved, but specifically, we are not condemned. We are no longer condemned. We evade condemnation and we escape bondage. We evade being condemned in our sin and we escape bondage in our sin. And now that bondage is referred to in Romans 6 and 7, where Paul says we are in sin, we are in Adam. And as in descendants of Adam, we do what Adam did. We rebel, we sin, we disobey. And remember back in Romans 6, he talked about how we are uh, under 
under sin or in bondage to sin, but because of Jesus, we no longer have to be in bondage to sin. We no longer have to yield to sin. And in Romans 7, Paul says the law couldn't help us because all the law did was make us want to sin more because when we were told we shouldn't do it, we just went and did what we weren't supposed to do. So we were bound in our sin. We are slaves to our sin. In Christ, we are not just freed from condemnation. We are freed from that very bondage because Christ's work doesn't just make us acceptable to God. It awakens us and aligns us with God's original design for us. First and foremost, salvation reconciles us to God. First and foremost, salvation brings us to God in redemption through Jesus, but it absolutely changes the quality of our lives restoring us in the Holy Spirit. And that is what uh, the, the last half of the, that section we looked at last week is all about, uh, how we are no longer in our flesh. We are in the Spirit or filled with the Spirit. And we have been raised up by the Spirit. And we learned last week about the effect that salvation has on us, that we are no longer condemned by sin because of the work of Christ. We are no longer controlled by sin because of the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, emphasis on the work of Jesus, the work of the Holy Spirit. Again, we learned last week, salvation is a work of God, right? It's not what we do, it's what we receive. It's a gift to us. Jesus has done the work to free us from condemnation. The Holy Spirit does the work to free us from control of that same Sin. So kind of our thesis last week or our conclusion last week was something like this. Salvation is not by works. It is a work of God. So it's not what we do. It is what God has done. And therefore, it works. If salvation is a work of God, that means it works for us. So when we talk about salvation being a gift, not a work that we do, that doesn't mean that, well, it doesn't matter what you do once you're saved, because it does matter what you do once you profess to be saved. Because if you profess to have the work of God in you, that work is going to be evident through you. Makes sense, right? That salvation is a work of God. And if it's a work of God, that means it works. It works for us and it works in us and it will be evident in our lives. And that, of course, is because the Holy Spirit has moved into our presence. Jesus has done something for us. The Holy Spirit brings that to us. We are not saved by works, but our salvation absolutely works. If it's not working for you, it's not God's problem. And, and, it, and it may be that we misunderstand and haven't fully surrendered to what God has done, but it's not a matter of somehow God hasn't done a good enough work for us or God isn't effective through us. It's something disconnecting between us and what he has offered to us. Now, I think this is incredible transforming truth. And that's just the first 11 verses. Now, verses 12 through 17 is gonna really lean into what it means to be filled with the spirit of God. And if you ever wondered, uh, and, and maybe, and, and I don't mean this to be uh, harsh, but I think a lot of us, we've, we've heard about the Holy Spirit filling us so long and so much. It's almost a superficial thing that we've heard people talk about all of our lives. Well, to be saved means the Spirit of God lives in us. But do we ever really realize what that means? And what does it really mean to live in His presence? And, and, and I, I got to say this, it's more than a feeling that you have at church. If the only understanding of the Holy Spirit you have is what you might feel at church when the song is good or the sermon hits right, 
the Spirit of God is more than that. And by all means, he's glad that you feel something when you come together with the people of God. But if that's only what the Spirit of God means to you, then you're missing 99.9% of what he intends to do for you and wants to be for you. So a lot of us, I think the Spirit of God is just a superficial idea. Yeah, he's there and he, you know, we, we feel a tingling presence sometimes, but what Romans, 12, Romans 8, 12 through 17 wants us to get is, is understand what it means to be filled with the Spirit of God. And, and these verses are some pretty monumental statements that Paul makes. If they're true, then they, by all means, should change our lives and change the way we perceive life and the way that we live our life. So follow along with me, if you will, uh, to, uh, in Romans 8, 12 through 17. Therefore, so another, there, another transition word, therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified Together, So that kind of teases something else that we're going to talk about at the end of our message. But this is a very powerful set of verses. Now, God's word is complete as it is. It doesn't need our help. Uh, it doesn't need a preacher to explain it. The word of God is holy and inspired as it is in front of you. But reading it, reading out loud even, reading it and understanding the context of every word assists us in getting the help that God has for us. So when we read these verses, especially when we hear them out loud, I think that a special emphasis should be put on the word are in verse number 12, whereas Paul says, therefore, brethren, we are debtors. I think there needs to be an emphasis on that word are, and I'll explain this why, explain why in a minute. Uh, uh, But in in the original Greek, the, the phrase literally is debtors we are, but Paul wants us to understand that we are debtors to something, and we'll talk about what that something is in a minute. Now, I think this needs emphasis because this might seem like it conflicts with the message of Romans so far. Because the concept of debt and being debtors, it might seem to contradict the message of Romans, which has been all about grace, that we're no longer under law. Uh, And when we hear about debt, we think that's a bad thing or we think that's a religious thing. So what does it mean for Paul to say, therefore, after hearing about our freedom from sin, hearing about our freedom from bondage, being filled with the spirit, he says, therefore, we are in debt or we are debtors. The word in here, if you really stretch all this out and, and, and summarize these verses, what he's saying is this. Therefore, having been filled with the Spirit of God, that was, that was verse 11, having been filled with the Spirit of God, we have an obligation to the Spirit of God. That's what he's saying. Now, he kind of breaks in the middle of the sentence when he says, we are debtors, there's a hyphen there. He says, not to the flesh. So he says, I'm not talking about debt as you think of debt in the flesh, as in all this is a burden, all this is bondage, all this is something that I'm not gonna enjoy, something that I don't really want to do. This is a different kind of debt. It's a different kind of obligation. 
Now, this is not about the, what it means to, to get saved. This is the result of being saved, that because we are saved, we are in a special kind of debt. Now, let me make this very clear. Again, when you hear debt, you often think of a threat, as in, oh, you better do this or somehow you're going to pay for it. But this is not a threat. This is a revelation that God wants to show us tonight. Again, when he says we are in debt, when, if somebody calls you and says, hey, you've got some debt, that's not good, right? I don't want to hear that. I want to I hear that I you know, have a credit, right? I don't want to hear about debt. Now, we hear that and it feels threatening, but Paul wants us to know this is not a threat. This is a revelation. It does not contradict the message of grace, but it builds off of it. Now, something that I think is important uh, that we haven't talked about so far in Romans really all of Paul's letters. Um, Paul's favorite way to address the church throughout all of his letters is this Greek word, adelphoi, adelphoi, which is spelled with those Greek letters, but it's spelled like that in in our our English transliteration. But that Greek word, if you read all of Paul's letters, and I'm sure you've read this, you've seen this word before in King James, New King James is brethren. uh, And and, in modern translations just make, just translate it as brothers. But that Greek word adelphoi literally means brothers and sisters, church family. and, And maybe the better translation is fellow Christian. So if you've read through, especially Corinthians, if you've read through Paul's letters, you see this phrase adelphoi again and again and again. Literally, he uses it hundreds of times in the New Testament. When he's talking to Christians, he always begins the passage with brethren or brothers and sisters, church, family, fellow Christian. When he uses that phrase, that that means he's wanting to get your attention as he's putting his arm around you and he's saying, listen, brother, listen, sister, this is something God has given to us, and this is only available to us. This is not available to the world. This is not available to people who who might believe. This is only available to people who have put their faith in Jesus. So anytime you see that word brethren or brothers or sisters, perk up because this is a special opportunity for you as a believer to get a hold of something that God has for you. And he uses it in Romans not that often, He uses it in Corinthians and in Galatians and Ephesians a lot, but he doesn't use it in Romans that much. And and, and I think there's a reason why. Because throughout the book of Romans, Paul, in the first, really first five, six chapters, Paul has been talking to people as if he, they did not know what it, if they, as if they weren't saved. He's been introducing salvation to people. And he gets to chapter seven, and the first time he uses that word brethren or brothers and sisters in, in Romans is in chapter seven, after he's already explained salvation. And he uses it again here in Romans eight. And the reason I bring your attention to this is because from Romans 8 on, he's talking to people who have understood salvation. So he's assuming that you are saved. So when he says that you're in debt, he's not saying that somehow, if unless you pay this debt off, you're not going to get saved. He's assuming that you're already in. He's assuming that you already have put your faith in Christ and that this is something that you have available or is available to you as a believer. This is part of your salvation. I know sometimes, you know, preachers like me, if we get up and preach a sermon about what you have to do and what you must do, which that's a whole other sermon, but Jesus uses that phrase, right? And Paul uses that phrase. Peter used that phrase. We must. This is kind of in the same line of, of, of debt. 
When preachers use those phrases like you must and you have to, people say, well, you know, I'm saved by grace. I don't have to do anything. And of course, you don't have to do anything. You don't want to do. But the want to is the issue, not really the have to. So when Paul says, brothers and sisters, we are in debt, somebody might say, well, I'm not in debt to anything. I'm saved by grace. And indeed you are. But there's something here that you might miss if you walk away as if this is something negative or if, as if this is something a burden that you don't want to bear. This is not a warning for the lost. This is inspiration for the saved. He says to us, you are not in debt or in bondage to your flesh anymore. You don't have to obey your sinful passions anymore. You've been released and renewed by the Spirit. That's what he explained back in, verses, uh, in chapter 8, verses 4 through 11. And now he says, but you are in a different kind of debt. You are in a glorious, gracious kind of debt. But let me explain. This kind of debt is somebody saying to you, you have to let me do something for you. You are obligated to let me do something for you. And maybe you have this arrangement with your family, with your spouse, with your kids or with your parents that once a year, birthday, Christmas, or a couple times a year, you're gonna let them do something for you. And you don't want them to because you know what? If it, you know, your spouse, it's both of your money. So why do you need to do something for me? Why don't you just let me do something for myself? Maybe you have that agreement with your spouse or your family that, hey, once a year, a couple times a year, you're gonna let me do something nice for you. And I know, I know you don't have to do it, and I don't have to let you do it, but I'm going to allow you to have control. That's the kind of debt this is talking about. When Paul says we are debtors to the Spirit, he's talking about a work that God wants to do for us that we have to be open up to and have to allow him to do. Literally, we, we spoke a few weeks ago at Easter about our inheritance, and down in verse 17, he literally says, this is our heritage. This is our inheritance. We are heirs to God. We are joint heirs with Jesus. As a Christian, you're, debtor, you're in debt to the Spirit, and that is part of your inheritance. That's what's been deeded to you. It's what's been put in your name. It's what you have the opportunity to take possession over that God's spirit dwells in you, that you are, we are in debt to the spirit of God to allow him to rule our lives. We don't have to let him. And many of us don't. Most of us don't all the time, if we're being honest. But as a Christian, for us to ignore that is to ignore our identity. This is something that we really should take, that it should take us aback at least a few times a week or a couple times a week or especially at church. This is something that should be forever and always eye-opening. I want you to stop and think about this. The Spirit of God, back in verse 11, what does Paul say? The Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Now, does it register with you that the Spirit of God lives in you? in you. Now, when we talk about spirit of God, again, we think tingly feeling. We think something that the preacher makes us feel or something that the worship team makes us feel. But I want you to think bigger than that because it's much bigger than that. The spirit of God. Now let's go way back. Genesis 1, far back as we can go in terms of the Bible. 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was there hovering over the water. So before there was anything, the Spirit of God was hovering over creation, about to cause everything to come into existence as we know it today. That same Spirit of God that existed above and beyond this earth, before this earth, over this earth, that formed this earth, that same Spirit of God dwells in you. Does that register with you? That is more than, oh, I felt something at church on Sunday, but I might, hopefully I feel it again next week, or I hope the preacher or the song does a good enough job to make me feel something as if the Spirit of God is dependent on somebody weak and fragile like me to conjure him up. It's bigger than that. Don't put him in that kind of box because he's not in a box, he's over the box, right? The Spirit of God, the Spirit who hovered over the waters of the earth before it was ever formed and made, that same Spirit lives in you. Now, when the Bible, when God called David to build a temple, the promise was that in the holy place that he would dwell through his spirit and he would give the, the Jews a taste of what it's like to be in his presence. And it was all kind of rituals and veils and sacrifices and all that stuff that kept people from really getting a hold of it. But when Solomon was dedicating the temple, he mused about how that seemed like an impossible thing. Listen to what he says in his prayer. Will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven in the highest heavens cannot contain him. So here's Solomon's rationale. How in the world can God's spirit fit in this house? It's, he, he's, the heavens can't even contain him. Now Solomon was no astro astrologer, he was no scientist, but he had an idea about something that nobody else would figure out until just about 50 years ago. So for 3000 years. The idea that God is so great and that he cannot be contained by the universe. The God whose presence demands that the universe constantly expand. Solomon believed that the, the universe was always getting bigger because God's presence demanded that it always be expanding. And did you know that a few decades ago, a few decades ago, scientists realized the universe is expanding. And that these numbers are gonna, not gonna mean anything to you, but I just wanted you to know that I did my homework. The universe is expanding 70 kilometers per second per three light years. And a light year is the distance that light travels over a year. So that means that in areas where there is less light, that the universe is expanding more rapidly, which is a message in and of itself, right? God is covering that darkness quicker than he is covering areas that are not dark, as in God is always expanding, now, science, that's scientific. NASA says, well, maybe it's, maybe it's a little bit faster. They actually think that it's more than 70 kilometers per second now. That the universe is expanding every second of every day. As we speak, the universe is expanding exponentially on every at every direction. Now, what does that mean to you? Well, here's what it means to you. God, in his presence, demands that the universe continues to grow because he is worthy of more. Solomon figured that out 3,000 years ago. We just figured it out a few decades ago. Back to the point. That same Spirit of God 
dwells in you. Now, don't you think that's more than a feeling you get once a week? People walk in churches, I'm not, nobody here, I'm sure, but people walk in churches and cross their arms and they, they, they think, well, I, I hope that somebody makes me feel something today. Do you realize how shallow we have an understanding or shallow our understanding of God is? The universe is expanding because God's presence cannot be contained. Yet the promise of Christianity is that the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, using that thought that God's presence is growing and growing and growing, expanding, expanding, expanding. If God's presence naturally is causing the universe to expand, shouldn't his presence be causing spiritual growth in us? I mean, I don't know how else you can, how, how you could answer that as a no, right? After all that. If God's presence is causing the universe to get bigger, how in the world can we explain that we are not growing spiritually. There's no excuse. There's no excuse. And again, I know that's easy for me to say with a microphone on, but there's just no excuse that if the Spirit of God who created the world, who expands the universe, how can His presence not be causing spiritual growth in us? And that, I think the reality of it is, is his, his presence just isn't in a lot of people's hearts that maybe even claim he is. Now, that's a whole other sermon. Now, doesn't this make the phrase, we are debtors to the Spirit, carry a little more weight? The God of heaven, the God of the universe, the God of all power, the God who demonstrated his power by raising Jesus from the dead lives in you. And you know what I think this does, especially for kids and young people, this should make your eyes, and, and I wish, and, I, and, I, and even as a preacher, and I love, I love Jesus, and I, I've tried my best to follow him as best as I can every day, but when I, was, when I first began to read this and figure this out as a teenager, my eyes were as big as saucers because I could not believe this is what Christianity was. And nobody ever told me, and I'm not knocking church and preachers, but nobody ever told me this. I sit in church week after week after week, and nobody ever told me the Spirit of God lives in me. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead, the Spirit of God who made the universe and expands the universe, that same Spirit lives in me. Nobody told me that. Nobody preached that. Nobody, no, songs didn't communicate that. I, I don't know what was going on, but nobody ever told me that. And I read Romans 8 one day when I was a teenager and my eyes could not get bigger and I could not contain what God was showing me. Because I think when you're younger, you're, you take it more literally. Wow, the Spirit of God lives in me? Wow, that's a big deal. And we get older and we think, well, you know, it's just not how life works, Justin. Life, you know, life's busy and complicated and my flesh is strong. And, you know, yeah, Spirit of God, I hope I see him on Sunday. But I don't know about this dominance in my heart. But what if we just took verse 12 literally? That we are in debt to the Spirit of God. And that we begin to realize that we have an obligation we owe him something. You know what we owe him? We owe him center stage in our life, right? If, if the person you respect the most, the person that you admire the most, politically, religiously, or any other aspect, if they came over to your house, you would give them all your attention. You would set out a table for them. You would do everything because you would be so conscious of what they deserve, right? Right? Remember when God showed up to Abraham and Abraham killed the, 
killed the cow, the fatted calf, and roasted him all day long and said, hey, God, can you wait a little while? I've got to roast this cow. I've got all day, okay. That's the idea of this, that the Holy Spirit lives in our hearts. So we have an obligation because he's made us an obligation. Does that register with you? That he has decided he will dwell in you. The universe isn't big enough for him, but your heart is an okay place for him to live. His presence demands preeminence. Preeminence means priority. Preeminence means superiority. Preeminence means first priority. How can we still defer to our flesh, our weak, paltry, fragile, temporary, finite flesh? How can we let our flesh be our guide if the Spirit of God lives in our hearts? You know what should humble us even more? And this is very humbling for me as a preacher. I don't just mean this, I'm not just standing up here shouting this as if I've got it all figured out. This is humbling. This is so humbling. The Holy Spirit is God. He's he's not from God. He is God, right? Trinity, God, Father, God, Son, God, Spirit. They're all one. God Almighty lives in your heart. Here's the thing about that, though. We associate some attributes with God. God is merciful. God is patient. And this is what makes... God living in us sometimes feel like it's not as big of a deal as it should be. Not because God isn't the big deal, but because of what we allow to overcome him and, and, and overpower him. Because the willing and eager spirit of God that lives in us is also patient and is also merciful. He will not force himself on anyone. He will not force you to say whatever you want, God. It's your choice. It's your decision. You have to defer to him. You know, I feel like there's a great presumption on our part when it comes to God's patience, maybe in this realm more than anything. His patience, his spirit is patient and mercy, merciful to us all the while he's burning and desiring that we might defer to him and obey him. And verse 13 paints the picture for, for every Christian. There are two paths we can take. We can live by the flesh and die, or we can live by the spirit and, and, and live and thrive. The question is, how can we not submit to the Spirit? How can we not delight in Him? Doesn't, that, doesn't the reality, doesn't the fact that we can indeed ignore Him and we can indeed follow our flesh in spite of Him living in us, doesn't that show how tight a grip of sin, tight a grip sin has on our life? Because all that stuff I just talked about is true, but the fact is all of us in our flesh and in our sin, we can, we can live as if God is nowhere near us and we can enjoy it. All of us have no problem sinning and no, we waste no time to sin and we let things get in our minds and take us in directions we shouldn't go in, in a minute. And that doesn't mean the spirit of God isn't in us. That just shows you how tight a grip sin has on us, doesn't it? This is how dangerous and how deadly our sinful nature is that even with God's spirit, we are still capable and prone to follow our flesh. Would to God that we would stop when our temper rises up, when our lust fires up, when greed and jealousy and fear and doubt and anger and hatred and our fleshly tendencies kick into gear, would to God we would fall on our face and ask God to deliver us immediately. That's what Jesus demonstrated when he was in the wilderness. Now, remember Luke 4 when 
Jesus was tempted. Notice the language Luke uses. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. So all this was God ordained it. God was in him, Holy Spirit, full, filling his heart, led him into the wilderness. And in the wilderness, he was tempted by the devil. The Spirit of God didn't tempt him, but full of the Spirit, he was still tempted. Now, he allowed himself to be tempted. Jesus didn't have a sinful nature like we do, but he allowed himself to be tempted so that we might can identify with him and see ourselves in him. So he allowed himself to be tempted and he allowed himself to be drained physically to the point that he was very hungry. And that word hungry is a loaded word. It's not just hungry physically, but he was so weak in his flesh. Like we are weak in our flesh. Now, Jesus never questioned, it was never a question if he was gonna overcome temptation, but there is a question for us. But the, the, the example that we find in this passage is when Jesus was tempted by the lust of the flesh, the lust of his eyes, the pride of life, Every time he immediately activates the spirit of God with the word of God. You've read it before. What does he do? It is written. It is written. It is written. And every time he says it is written, Satan loses his power. He's disarmed and Jesus walks away free. And at the end of all that, it says that the devil departed him. Now that's convicting stuff, but this is a picture of what our lives can be like in Christ what our lives can be like full of the Holy Spirit. So here's the question. Here's the question as we wrap up. Are we allowing and seeking and facilitating the Spirit's desire, intent, and ability to work within us? I know there's a lot. I know I kind of, a lot of, word, a lot of little words in there, but essentially, are we allowing the Spirit to work through us? Are we? We've heard what the Spirit of God, who He is and what He wants to do. But we've also heard what we are capable of doing in spite of all that. Are we allowing, seeking, facilitating the Spirit to rule and reign in us, to change us inwardly, to connect us outwardly with other believers, to call us upwardly? We will never be where we can be as Christians if we are not living a life of debt to the Spirit of God. A life that we get out of bed every day and say, we feel as if we are tethered to, we feel as if we are in debt to the Spirit of God, as in God, you rule my life. I have got to let you guide me and lead me. There is no other choice. James, the brother of Jesus, put it this way. Submit yourselves to God, resist the devil. He willfully draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded because we are double-minded, aren't we? Our sin says to do this, the Spirit of God says to do that. A saved person ought not to be living a double-minded life, though. We ought to be fixed on who we are, whose we are. And that's the, the emphasis of verse 14. If we are led by the Spirit, we are children of God, sons of God, daughters of God, children of God. That word led means to be carried and brought and arrested. Literally, the word can be used for arrested. We are led by the Spirit of God. Would you describe your deference to God's Spirit as if you are arrested by Him? Now, He doesn't treat you as if you're a slave. He treats you like you're a child. So that's why Paul makes the clarification in verse 16 uh, or verse 15. You're not in bondage, you are adopted. So Paul does not want you to think that this is something that God is dragging you to do against your will, but he wants us to understand it can have that same effect, that God is leading you 
in a positive way, just like a slave might would be led in a negative way. Same connotation though, just the opposite effect. This obligation is not external dictation, it's internal desire because you have been adopted. What what does verse 15 say? You have received adoption whereby you can cry out Abba or Daddy. We've been adopted into God's family. Verse 15 says we cry out Abba, Father. Verse 16 says we are children of God. Verse 17 says we are heirs of God, joint heirs with Jesus. Now, this is all just going to be a recap, but the same spirit that Christ lived by emanates from God himself has made us a child of God. We are heirs of God. So everything that God has promised is available to us because we are his children. And we are joint heirs with Jesus, meaning that we possess the same spirit that Jesus possessed. We are promised the same presence of God. Now, when it says we're joint heirs with Jesus, obviously we're not God. Jesus is God, we're not. Jesus is the son of God. We're children of God, but not in that divine sense. So when, we, when it says we're joint heirs, it doesn't say we become divine, but it does mean we become spirit-filled. Jesus is still above us. He's Lord, but we are joint heirs and as in we are ch- a child of God as he demonstrated in his own earthly ministry. So while he is divine exclusively, his humanity is a picture of what our humanity can look like. We can have victory over sin. And a teaser for next week, we can find the ability to endure through suffering. Now, the emphasis of this passage, obviously, I think, is the victory over sin. But if we're, as we get into next week, verses 18 through 28, the teaser at the end of verse 17 is that, there, that part of becoming like Christ and becoming living through the Spirit is that we will face trials and suffering because when we begin to choose God instead of the world— that the world begins to put pressure on us and we begin to suffer in some way, shape, or form. The Spirit of God does not just empower us to live above sin. He puts a life of suffering in perspective because as we choose God, we reject the world and the world rejects us. Notice how Paul emphasizes our inheritance to entice us before dealing with this true reality that may be less glamorous. But it's as important. When it comes to assuming our new identity and our joint heir with Jesus, our heirship of God, it signals to the world that we are different. We are redeemed. Sin is no longer our, sin no longer has dominion and suffering no longer spells doom over us. As the world waits for redemption and restoration, we are forerunners of what a life free of sin and free of shame looks like in a life that can endure anything. Our suffering preaches a message and we proclaim a message of hope to the world. God proves and demonstrates his power through us. His resurrection power is demonstrated through us again and again as we choose the spirit of God over the flesh. We are a testament to the world of what God can do and what God wants to do. So whether we are tempted or whether we face a trial, we must lean into the spirit of God who lives in us because he longs to make known his power, his presence through his work in our lives. I'll leave you with 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul says, no temptation has overcome you, overtaken you that that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape. You know what that way of escape is? His spirit lives in you. 
and you can endure. And if it costs you by saying no, there is an endurance that can be achieved. God is alive in us. He dwells within us. He delivers us from sin. He puts suffering in perspective. He is God and he lives in us. He is our inheritance. I pray that we would be a little bit more keen to what we have access to, who we have access to as a result of this passage. I don't think we should be able to read Romans 8, 12 through 17 and not respond humbly with praise and adoration to God because if what those verses tell us is true, we ought to live differently. And we don't have the ability to live differently in and of ourselves, but we have what we need through the Spirit of God. If those verses are true, we ought to fall on our face before God and say, God, I want to live every day aware of that and keen to that. I want to be an heir. I want to be a joint heir. I want to live in light of that gift. And I think that if there's anything that God wants for his children, what do you want most for your children? That they enjoy the life that you have given them. Your heart beats that they might take advantage of everything available to them. God is no different. He has sent you his spirit. How are you living in light of that gift? I wouldn't go to bed tonight if I hadn't made my mind up that tomorrow morning I'm gonna wake up and I'm gonna give the spirit of God center stage in my life. How different our lives might be, how much better they would be. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this good news. Lord, thank you for the gospel that isn't just about salvation, but it's also about what life looks like now that we are saved. Lord, to know that the Spirit of God dwells in us and, and we don't always feel him like we want to feel him. We don't always have the sensation like we want to have. But if we believe the gospel, if, if your promise to us is true, then it's not about a feeling. It's about our faith and about what we allow you to do in, in the room that we give you to be in control. God, I pray that you might would make your spirit powerful over our flesh, that we might would defer to you and give place to you and would surrender to you. Lord, that we might would hear that phrase, we are in debt to God, in debt to his spirit, not as a burden, but as a blessing that we might begin walking in the joy and the newness of what is available to us. Lord, when our flesh rises up tomorrow to take us down a road that is not becoming or is not what a Christian should do, would you remind us of what we have access to, who we have access to, and would you change our lives as a result? Remind us we are children of God. We are brothers and sisters We are up to Jesus. We are in his family. We are the children of the most high God and our lives are different as a result. We ask all of this in Jesus' name, amen.